So uh, the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Philippians, uh, specifically in 19 of chapter 2 through 30. And what we've looked at so far is, I would say, four major characters or major players. We've got Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and of course, the church at Philippi. And one overarching uh, reality that's important to remember from our study so far is uh, really that the love and care and grace of God was upon all uh, of these people, or in this case, uh, the people of Philippi as well, in all different directions. That's something I want, I want you to just take note of, as if, note of as we look at a very faithful apostle, a very faithful church, and two faithful men that were instrumental as sort of lifelines uh, between the two in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what is incredible about these relationships is that the care of Christ, the love of Christ went in all sorts of ways. The Philippian church loved Paul, sent money uh, to him, cared for him in his time of need. Paul prayed for, loved the church of Philippi. Epaphroditus obviously loved Paul. Epaphroditus cared deeply for the church. The church cared for Timothy, the Timothy cared for church, and so on. Um, it is a great microcosm of the body of Christ at work, or in other words, the grace of God at work through the people of God. Something to learn from. That's what we've looked at so far in 19 through 30. And the Philippian church was a congregation, of course, that had its eye on the prize and growing in Christ's likeness and supported Paul as the gospel went forth in other areas and was one of the most faithful churches in that regard. And so I wanted to remind you before we go into what we're looking at today, and the question I wanted to answer today is, well, what then? What then uh, for this church? What was Paul driving at and prayerfully what can be driven at um, in our day as well? Before that, I wanted to remind you of some of the circumstances that were going on in this time with this church and with Paul. One reality was the faithfulness in general of the Philippian church. Uh, this was a very commendable body, a very commendable congregation. Um, one that in terms of maturity and godliness and faithfulness surpassed in certain ways. Um, other congregation still had ways to mature like any body, um, any local body ever because of indwelling sin and individual members. There's no perfect church. But we can say that it was a more mature uh, church than some, and that's to be commended, and we praise God for that. So we have their faithfulness, faithfulness, which Paul is so thankful for. We also have rival preachers in Rome. So we have rival preachers that preached a true message of Christ, but their motivations, um, according to what is written about in chapter 1, they weren't so pure. Um, in fact, they probably gloated a bit about another circumstance that Paul was in prison. I don't know if he had this nickname, but maybe they called him Jailbird, something like that. Paul the Jailbird. Finally, um, we can grow our group. True gospel, but they are rivals, and so uh, that's, that's no good. But it's better than another circumstance, false teachers. 
false teachers who um, Paul warns about in 3 verse 2. Look out for the dogs. And they had a false gospel of a look to Christ, but also the necessity of keeping, uh, in this case, the old covenant practice of circumcision as making one right with God. They believe that in order to be made right with God, that had to be in place. And Paul calls that, no, a false gospel, specifically in the book of Galatians, because this is a work, and it's only the work of Christ which makes us right with God, only his blood that has been spilled. And so we've got false teachers that were obviously near enough and influential enough to the church that Paul would actually have to warn them. And if you can imagine uh, being Paul, being in a different location, physically bound, only really able to communicate through messengers and messages, and here you know that there are bad actors ready to devour and cause division and cause confusion, I believe you'd be writing the same things. You would say, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Not nice words, but necessary words. Uh, Another circumstance is sickness. The sickness um, of Epaphroditus as he took um, uh, supplies, money to Paul from the church um, as just a gift from God. And then probably the two most important realities that get to where we're going today is, one, the gospel going forth. The gospel went forth as from Paul's imprisonment. That served as a witness of his faithfulness in being imprisoned and his boldness served as a witness uh, for the gospel to go forth and gave others boldness to preach and to come to know the Lord Christ. So the gospel goes forth and Christ is being praised. He's being praised in Philippi. He's being praised in Rome. The gospel is bearing fruit. It's amazing. How is this guy who's in prison? How is this still happening? Well, that is because the power of Christ does that. The power of Christ does that. And so these two realities, these main two, the gospel is going forth. It's bearing fruit. And Christ is being praised. He is Lord. He is King. Is leading to Paul's joy. Paul's overarching and overwhelming heart condition, as we see in this book, is joy. And particularly, it is triumphant joy amidst suffering. Or, put better, triumphant joy in Christ in the midst of suffering. And that's all throughout his letter, and we would say that's the theme of the book. Triumphant joy in Christ amidst suffering. All throughout this book, the word joy and rejoice is is littered, um, which is why I wanted to end today with finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So think about Paul and think about his situation for a second. Paul is in some sort of uh, prison situation. He's in chains, probably chained to a Roman guard. He writes elsewhere, I believe it's in 2 Timothy, he says, though I am chained, the word of God is not chained. And so how how is this happening? How is the gospel still bearing fruit? Well, because right there, the good news of Christ is not bound by physical location, um, but it works in hearts. And the word of Christ is not chained because God is not chained. 
That's why Paul was able to have such joy. God is not chained. We know that. God is more powerful than any physical circumstance that could be happening on this earth. We know that Christ wasn't chained to death. Death couldn't hold Christ. Christ laid his down of his own accord, laid his life down of his own accord, and he took it up again. And so if Christ is powerful enough, if he is sovereign enough to do that, to be resurrected by the power of God from the dead, you better believe that he's powerful enough to work through a circumstance like jail or sickness or the persecution of a church or the persecution of a people to see that his good news of forgiveness in his son is brought forth and brought to needy, helpless sinners, of which everyone is in their natural state. These realities, this high view of God, brought joy to Paul. It wasn't easy, but he knew, man, he knew his Old Testament too. He knew, man, the Lord works through this stuff. God's seen more than this before. He'll work here too. God knew Moses. God knew Joseph. God knew the Israelites. God knew all of these things throughout history. I am, I'm just another one in this long line. Lord, help me remember that. And what a perspective he had. And I pray that someday uh, I may have a grain um, of that kind of faithfulness. And so what is this book leading to? It's leading to rejoicing, but it's leading to particularly this. Paul is instructing the church. I have this joy, this unbelievable, almost unfathomable joy despite any circumstance. So join with me. That's what today is about. Join with me in joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Not just rejoice, but in the Lord. Let's follow Christ together through thick and thin and rejoice. He's got us. He cares for us. He is the shepherd. No one can be snatched from his hand if they truly know him. Jesus cares for us, and we can have joy. Paul uh, basically says it in a similar way in 2 verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so this joy, this heart condition that was an overflow of knowing God wasn't just for an apostle, but was for anyone who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't reserved for the super-duper spiritual or the super-duper called or the clergy but it was reserved for anyone who would come and kneel at the feet of Jesus. Rejoice with me. God's in control. I may be chained, but the word of God is not chained. Rejoice in Timothy. Rejoice in Epaphroditus and their faithfulness. Have joy in what the Lord God has done in your lives and in your congregation. Have joy in the fact that I am persecuted and still that's not stopping anything. It's actually helping the message go forth. In the same way, uh, often that persecution and evil in the Old Testament actually served to advance God's causes. Uh, Joseph 
essentially saying, well, no, brothers, you did not put me here, but God put me here. What was meant for evil, God did for good. So what is this book leading to? What is it all about? Join with me in rejoicing in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. And again, what is joy? Well, joy is that deep, personal, inward, relational knowledge of God that overflows in contentment and praise and being happy in the Lord. So what I wanted to look at this morning are what are a few qualities of joy? What are a few qualities of joy this morning? So number one, what is joy? What, what does it have? What is true of it? Well, first I'll speak about what joy is not, and then we'll get into what are the characteristics of joy. What joy is not is ignorance is bliss. It's not the absence of trouble or absence of problems, right? And that may be fairly obvious, but I think it's worth saying because I believe we're often tempted to think that, well, having a rejoicing heart in the Lord is sort of keeping your heads up in the clouds and not thinking about the trouble of the world, but rather you think about God's servants throughout history and in particular biblical history. They were some of the most suffering there are, correct? So it's not absence of um, uh, trouble. It's not just this ignorance is bliss mindset. We need only look to verse 2 of chapter 3 to see, see that. We've got verse 1 that says rejoice, verse 2 that says, hey, look out for the dogs. And so we embrace Christ, we take joy in Him as we stand guard against false ways of thinking and living that contradict the character of God. Actually, these two things can and should go together. And so what does that mean for someone who knows Christ? Well, I would dare to say that it means somehow, some way, only by the goodness of God, we fight and we even enjoy the fight. Not the idea of making enemies, but we rejoice in the fact that God has even allowed us by His grace to be called people on His team. I mean, that, that blows my mind. Rejoice in the Lord. So it definitely does not mean to not fight. It doesn't mean to pretend that evil doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that you'll never have trouble. Um, In fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, we are following after the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. If they hated him, they will hate his servants also. So that's off the table. And so what is the foundation of joy? It has a certain ground it walks on, meaning the foundation of joy is a true, deep, real, intimate, relational knowledge of God. That's number one. What is true of joy? It is founded. Its foundation is a true knowledge of God. To not know God in a true, real, relational, saving way disqualifies from what the Bible would call joy. This wonderful heart expression and heart condition that is a fruit of walking in the Spirit. 
Timothy and Epaphroditus had joy. Paul had joy. The Philippian church had it. Uh, They had experienced what is written, I talked about last week, chapter 1, verse 2. They had experienced the grace and peace of God. That is the unmerited favor, grace that God gives, and the peace, vertical peace with God that is given in forgiveness of sins. They had experienced um, verse, chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work. A good work begins in someone who comes to know the Lord Jesus. A good work begins, and I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. They also knew, had experienced the worship of Christ that is brought from the reality um, written about in chapter 2 in the first few verses. And I'll start at 5. Paul writes this, Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee should bow in heaven and earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if someone knows Christ, truly has come to be forgiven and follows Christ, they will not be like those in Revelation who say, spare us from the wrath of the land, but rather their bowing, their knees will be in joy. It's not a begrudging thing for a believer to bow to Christ at his throne, but rather it's a wonderful praise uh, before him that is an expression of a heart that's been changed by God. Often in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and other things, when someone is called to praise the Lord, often what is written there is with joy. Those two things naturally um, go together. Praising Christ is a joy. And the knowledge of this Savior, written about in 2, 5 through 11, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, death on a cross for helpless, needy, rebellious, wicked, evil sinners, that, knowing that that's applied to oneself and that Christ took all of that, that brings joy. But without that, without the foundation of a true knowledge of this wonderful, beautiful Savior, Lord Jesus, there will be none. So that is one, a true knowledge of God allows us to follow the command given in 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in who? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. 
the foundation. Number two about joy is it can grow or recede as it is cultivated or not cultivated. In other words, the means of grace that God gives us, if the means of grace, uh, that is particularly baptism, Lord's Supper, and the word preached and intaken, and more general means of prayer and the fellowship of believers, if those are speaking to the soul, joy in knowing who Christ is and experiences love, walking with Him, experience the truth of Him changing and transforming the mind into greater godliness, that will naturally lead to a rejoicing, a delighting in God. Our soul will be fed. Uh, I believe it's Psalm 19 that says, the word of the Lord rejoices the heart. That's a means of grace, rejoicing the heart. I hear about God. I hear about His wonderful law. I hear about how Christ fulfilled it. I hear about how it's in my place. I hear about how to grow. I hear about how to love my neighbor. And on and on and on and on and on. I hear about how my neighbor has loved me. Oh my goodness. Overflowing. Overflowing. However, the opposite, right? If those realities... Uh, time spent with brothers and sisters in Christ, time spent in a congregation, particularly on the Lord's Day, which He's set forth as the gathering day, a blessed day. If intake of God's Word, if prayer is suffering, all those things, naturally, and many I think could attest by experience, the heart will slowly grow colder. And perhaps speaking to a pastor who's been around, you know, a long time would attest to this, but man, it's, it's ugly and it's, it's sad and it's just disheartening to be with someone and then maybe you see them five years later, ten years later, whatever, and it seems, wow, they had more rejoicing and joy and zeal and vigor in Christ than they do today. And perhaps that would mean maybe they never truly knew God. Maybe, maybe they were like one of um, the four soils in the parable where there's initial sprout, uh, but then faded. Or perhaps they are simply a believer um, who has fallen into some backsliding um, and who has not been careful to walk in the power of the Spirit. And therefore, uh, their life has more trouble than it needs to have and it's not ugly in the sense of condemning that person um, or looking down on such a person, but rather it's just a sorrowful thing to think about that, right? Um, it's a, man, it is a tough, tough reality. Uh, and I've seen just a little bit of it, uh, but it's a sad thing. The ground of joy is a true knowledge of our Lord Jesus. It can grow over time and should grow over time as God blesses us through His Word, through baptism, the Lord's Supper, as we see the good news of Christ, His sacraments. And in general, as we plant ourselves rooted in a local congregation, 
and as we pray with, for one another. It can grow. It can also, unfortunately, slowly wither. If one is truly in Christ, the joy can never completely die out. It's like a fire, but in this case, it's a fire that will always have at least a spark. Because if one is a believer, we know that truly one is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And how does the joy grow? Well, it's by fanning the flame with the means of grace that God has given us. So though a Christian can over time have seasons and periods where they are in sin, and therefore the natural joy of knowing and following Christ will recede, it can't truly die. And if it truly dies, well, it was never there. It was always dead and was only ever a veneer that is a counterfeit. And things can be faked, unfortunately. Right? They went out from us because they were not of us. Uh, John writes in his epistle. Three, the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in Him, it's contagious. Three, joy is contagious. Uh, lack thereof, perhaps, as well. I'm, I'm kind of doing the opposite thing today. It's this, and, but the opposite's true. Well, joy is truly a contagious thing. And this is one that I would appeal prayerfully at some level to experience. If you've ever met a Christian who is characterized overarchingly by a joy that just will not die, though their circumstances make you think, why? It's hard when you're around that servant of the Lord to not be moved to greater worship. Amen. Uh, I'm reading a bit about an average or so servant of the Lord named Spurgeon. And it is fascinating to me. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the term that's often used to describe his ministry is logic on fire. So logic, that is the true, real truths and teachings of God are there and there are no corners cut, but it's on fire. It is merciful. It's going out to love those who are needy, need Christ, to love the brethren, to see them built up. The same is true of Spurgeon. There was a logic on fire. I'm sure not every last thing he ever said I would agree with, but in general, he wasn't cutting corners in terms of the great theological truths of God's Word, and yet he had a fire that manifested itself, oh, truly, in joy. And that's why um, when he would lecture his students of his college, um, which was different than, you know, the church he founded, the orphanage he founded, you know, he did a few things, I suppose. Uh, when he would lecture his students, a lot of times it was the profound word of the Lord that was spoken that was so attractive, but also his warmth as someone who had been impacted, truly impacted inwardly, 
by the Holy Spirit and his knowledge of Christ and the word of God reshaping him as a believer over time. That was a magnetic thing. And it set his area on fire for Christ. It was a contagious joy. And I believe we can see that in this book as well. Uh, There's a reason Paul says, rejoice with me, uh, because it's possible to spur one another on to good works, to spur one another on to greater joy. Amen? And I won't touch on it too much, but the opposite, of course, is true. We can be the type of Christians who only ever have a dark cloud over our heads, and we are, of course, to mourn in real situations of mourning, but it can be very easy to live in a sort of self bubble of self-pity, and that can easily sort of wilt a flower very quickly. And, um, well, you just don't want to be the person that comes in and steals joy, right? It's a contagious thing. Number four, it's not only contagious, it's founded on Christ. It can grow. It can grow, and number four, God grants more of it, more joy in our lives through suffering. God grants greater joy through suffering, and in particular, when we look at a biblical look, perhaps a doctrine or theology of suffering, of which there is such a tapestry throughout the Scriptures. Those who are suffering, like a psalmist, David, Paul, they are always embracing it as this is where the Lord has me now, but they are also looking toward God's future triumph. And both need to be held. And that's well part of where joy is coming in there. It's not only we are to suffer but that is, and that is true. It's also looking forward to the deliverance of God and His wonderful hand on His servant in the here and now in the midst of those hard times. Uh, James, when he writes, take joy in your many trials, he's looking forward to the fact that, well, character produces perseverance and per- perseverance hope. Like there is something being made out of this. God is granting something through suffering. And in general, that would just mean greater godliness and, on a practical level, a greater ability to care for others. Many times, great servants of God have had great suffering. They've been great sufferers. Um, But what they were were an instrument that God was molding into something more impactful for himself, a sharper sword. We can look to the example of Christ, or Joseph, or Paul, or Paul, or Paul, or Paul. Um, Over and over and over again, uh, Jesus' disciples, and see that suffering produces character, um, and this is a greater joy. And we can have joy in the trial. And... If you've been a part of a body of Christ, a local body for any amount of time, we know that when someone is going through something deep and profound 
and gut-wrenching, that is also where God has granted um, the local church to be a resource and a help and prayer warriors as well. So even in the here and now, when someone is going through difficult times, God shows His gracious and merciful hand uh, by the spiritual giftings that is poured out in the service of a weary, tired, and struggling brother or sister. And even that should raise our heads up for a smile at the goodness of Christ. So, it has a certain ground, a grounding that is knowledge of the Lord. If I am to have a life that is an expression of gladness that manifests itself in real reality, first, I have to know Christ. That cannot be faked. Right? I think that is one thing, really, uh, about you know, a true or false faith. Maybe that's underrated is the fact that, man, if you look back and someone has fallen away, it's like, man, I don't know if there was a lot of joy there a lot of times. Just food for thought. So it has a certain ground it walks on. It can be cultivated. It can grow. should grow. But there's a danger. Um, in seasons of sin, uh, we should take note that it can definitely recede. It can wither. And may we not waste months, years in those times. It is contagious. And that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Uh, Joey and I right now are having OCL and Devin uh, stay at our house before OCL goes off. And Devin's on a mission trip. And, you know, it's kind of become a little frat house of sorts, and uh, it's, it's just been really fun. Uh, but one thing, you know, I've been reminded of is just through two or three conversations just in passing with OCL is this reality of contagious joy at work and caring for one another. And even, even when it's not been the most intentional thing, it's just the overflow of OCL's heart speaks of some of the things of God, and so I am overjoyed by those things. Um, as he reads about a book, uh, what if I'm, what is it? What if I'm uh, struggling in my evangelism or discouraged in my evangelism? You know, we talk about that, and then, you know, I'm more equipped and more ready to. Oh, yeah, like that can happen to me in my neighborhood thing, whatever. Uh, but it's a joy uh, to realize that I could pray for another Christian in that way. And Devin's just a joy. Let's be honest. Uh, God grants more of it, more joy through suffering. And that's, I would say, if there's one kind of big, other than point one, I would say that's the big one. That's the punch, is God will give us a greater knowledge um, of who He is, a knowledge of His will, and a deeper um, happiness and gladness in Him and a deep affection for Him as He brings us through uh, those dark times, the valley of the shadow of death. But he is with us. He will comfort us. And five, joy. What's true of it? It works. It works. And I mean that in somewhat of a double meaning, I suppose. One, uh, 
more on just the practical sense, joyful people are contagious. And so, yes, in that sense, it sort of works. Um, you like to be around them, whatever. But more particularly, joy will manifest itself in Christian service uh, for the lost, but more particularly for the brethren, works of hospitality, prayer for one another. Joy will show itself in works, just as knowledge of Christ will show itself in works. I think it's fairly safe to say that love will, will be at some level accompanied by joy. And, you know, I would think the fruit of the Spirit would testify to that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's an overall essence of Christ-likeness, the overall product of walking and being grounded and practicing God's presence. Joy works in that God, through the joy and knowledge of Christ and his love for us, carries us along to serve him and to realize that labor for him is not in vain, but is rather, as Paul would write in this book, fruitful labor, even if dying seems like a better option as it did to him at times. It works, and the example I wanted to point to is Zacchaeus, of all people in the New Testament. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, and I think something about he then climbed up on a tree or something. I kind of was in and out as a kid in Sunday school. <laughs> um, but I know he was uh, short, and as um, the New Testament uh, speaks about, he was a tax collector known for taking far more than was legally necessary. And so really he was a cheater. He was a thief. And that was, uh, I, I suppose, according to Ray Comfort, he'd probably be a lying thief too. Um, so he just lied to people, took too much. Um, and he was all about filling his own pocket. And that was what his addiction was. You cannot serve both God and money. And Zacchaeus, he served money. It's just black and white. It's pretty simple, man. But Zacchaeus, upon hearing about Christ, hearing about his forgiveness, uh, having Christ eat, I believe, at his house, his response at that forgiveness and Jesus saying, truly today I say to you, salvation has come to this house. I imagine much the shock of the disciples at the time. What was his response? His response was joyfully, gladly, willingly, not even really at the, the exhortation of Jesus. He says, I'm going to go out and give fourfold what I have stolen. And he does that with joy. That's Zacchaeus. The joy of the Lord, it worked itself out in this amazing obedience to Christ and particularly the law of God. A man like Zacchaeus was changed. The joy of the Lord uh, carried him. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Christ knowing that he was securing a people for himself. Joy carried him. The negative example of joy or the opposite of joy that came to my mind thinking about this morning was Jonah. And God uses whoever he wants 
in whatever way in many times in his ultimate sovereignty uh, to produce his will. But Jonah is someone that under the banner of the people of God must be the least joyful and glad and happy servants of the Lord um, that one could think of. At least technically, he was called of the people of God. You've got him as a prophet, and God tells him, go to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah's response is essentially, oh, all right. And so even after the Lord chastises him and Jonah perhaps half-heartedly repents as he's in the heart of a whale, there's a lot going on there that we only have a surface-level understanding of given the magnitude of what was happening. Even when he calls the people of Nineveh to repentance and they repent, there's not joy. But rather it's more... I knew you'd do that, God. I knew you'd bring him to repentance. How dare you? Well, may that not be true of anyone in this room, I pray, but rather may our response to seeing someone that lives a life in hatred of God, but that turns from that by the mercy of Christ, puts their full weight of trust in Him, and his merciful work on the cross, may that cause joy. And so I wanted, uh, I wanted you to take a real look at yourself this morning. And one thing it is easy to do at times is, well, to put on a smile, but wonder, is this just a fake smile? And joy doesn't always have to manifest itself, I think, in a fake smile or a smile. But the question is, what is your heart condition uh, this morning, particularly over the last few months? These realities of joy, are they present in your life? Are they present in your life? Can you say with Paul, come along with me and rejoice in the Lord? Let's do this together. Can you say that along with Paul? Rejoice with me. Let's go. Or uh, would a better way to describe your life be that of a uh, dry sponge sitting by the sink? Right? It hasn't been used in a while, and it's, it's really good for nothing. Know that there is one who supplies and applies joy in abundant and ever-flowing amounts. Uh, there is no, there's no lack of joy in Christ. He, has, he doesn't have some ration uh, that he only has a little bit to give out. No, there is abundant and eternal and infinite joy to be had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're lacking it, um, I don't know your spiritual state before God, but God does. And God knows that the answer to such a problem of being stuck in a place that is not experiencing Christ and doesn't live in a way that knows Him is to come at His feet and ask for forgiveness and ask that He would change you. And the Bible promises that He will. Ask and you will receive. 
That's what the Lord Jesus does. There's Jonah, and then there's triumphant joy in Christ amidst some suffering. Emphasis on triumphant and in Christ. Suffering does not mean losing. Christ has brought victory against death and against the power of sin, against the guilt of sin. He has brought victory against a lack of knowledge of God. He's brought people to know God, and He can bring you to know God too. He can bring you from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of light, to living in a way, in a way of thinking, in a way in your heart that is pleasing and all about loving oneself under the power of Satan, to being freed being freed from all that to know the love and power and joy of Christ, the God-man. I pray that the last few weeks have been blessed for you. Um, and I pray ultimately that more so than a faithful church and more so than a faithful apostle and Timothy and Epaphroditus, you've seen a faithful Christ who will apply these realities to us if we will get on our knees, ask for forgiveness for the ways that we fall short of Him, and cry out to Him and He will answer.